Welcome in the latest episode of that SEC podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bratton. I go by SEC Mike on Twitter. And I got a terrific guest lined up for the show, Clark Brooks, SEC Stat Cat, recently hired by On3 Sports, going to break down some SEC quarterbacks and the importance of Chris Rodriguez to that Kentucky Wildcat offense. But, hey, a little announcement here. We just had the SEC Media Days application sent to our inbox. Shane and I both have applied. Fingers crossed we get in. We won't know for a couple of weeks, but just wanted to keep the audience in the loop of what's going on with that. Potentially, that SEC podcast first trip to SEC Media Days. I've been down there a couple times but uh, with a different outlet. But this will be the first time Cousin Shane and I on location for SEC Media Days. So again, we'll keep you guys in the loop. Maybe uh, we'll have some fun plans down there. It's in Atlanta this year, not Hoover, at the College Football Hall of Fame. So, hey, we've booked uh, reservations. We've crossed our T's and dotted our I's just waiting on the SEC to, to rubber stamp our credentials to the event. So, hey, we ain't lying when we're saying the show is growing, and hopefully this is going to be the best season yet, starting with a trip down to Atlanta for the SEC Media Days 2022. Cannot wait to find out if we snuck in there this year. <laughs> but, to, hey, one more show to round out the week here. Five shows. I hope you guys appreciate the hustle on our end. Hopefully... Cousin Shane will be back. I'm tired of uh, giving timelines because I just don't know when that's going to happen. But hopefully sooner rather than later, we'll have the, the Tennessee Homer back on the show. But for now, deep dive here with Clark Brooks, a.k.a. the SEC Stat Cat. Hey, well, we're pleased to once again be joined by Clark Brooks. You know him best as SEC Stat Cat. Give him a follow, SEC underscore Stat Cat. And don't forget to check out the website, same thing, secstatcat.com. And he's now an analyst for the terrific website, on3.com. Clark, thank you so much for joining me once again. It's a treat to talk to you. Oh, Mike, it's always a pleasure to talk ball, especially like we were saying in the pregame, just how slow this is, (laughs) this type of year, where we're just really willing to talk about literally anything and hopefully your listeners can get some nice information and put it in their back pocket for this upcoming fall yeah no doubt and you know the, the thing I really like about uh, all the work you have you do over there at SEC Stat Cat Clark is you find unique ways to look at the game and there's too many people just looking at the okay who threw for the most yards who threw for the most touchdowns let's put them at the top of the list you go much, much, much deeper than all that. You went, my God, you po- posted a 40-minute uh, video breaking down the SEC quarterback passing floors, and that's what I really wanted to have you on to talk about. But before we get to that, huge story in Lexington, all across the SEC, really, because the Wildcats are embarking on what could be a special season, but arguably their their best player, Chris Rodriguez, status up in the air uh and and i know hell i've had you on the show for years touting chris rodriguez and all he does for that kentucky offense what is his importance to what mark stoops and company are are building there in lexington 
Well, in my opinion, it breaks down to three situations where he's just been dramatically better than what the Wildcats have. And when you look across the conference, very few since I've been charting conference offices have been as consistent and impactful in those three areas. Caping for him for two years, he has been efficient, impactful. But the big thing with Wild with the Wildcats is they really don't have anybody that can match his skill set. Now, I like to point to three certain criteria situations where he's just been absolutely outstanding by SEC standards, by national standards. Um, and the first is on first downs. Wildcats under Ed Grand, even with Liam Cohen this past season, top three run rate to start a set of downs. You know, <laughs> a lot of teams like to establish it, Mike. You know, I, I think you may have heard that once or twice before. But with the run heavy Wildcats, Chris Rodriguez, he has been incredibly successful. What do I mean by that? I mean that literally with a term I call success rate. So it is seen in other areas across the country, but success rate basically is how often are you able to keep your offense ahead of the chains in advantageous down and distance situations. So in order to be successful on first downs, you have to gain half of the yards to gain. Well, Chris Rodriguez in 2020, his success rate was the highest I've ever seen to start a set of downs. Two thirds of his carries beat situational goals. And even though it took a step back this past year, basically in this span, his success rate has been 20, yes, two zero percentage points over the SEC mean. And I'm going to use another statistic to try and um, accentuate just how dominant he has been keeping Kentucky on schedule. So expected points added. This is another modern statistic where it takes basically success rate, that thing I just mentioned, with points per play. So obviously – Positive points are great for offenses. Negative points are good for defenses. Well, on all rush attempts with at least five yards or more to gain, the average run produces a negative EPA. So just think of that. Chris Rodriguez running to establish, you know, to establish usually would set the offense up to fail. But because of how consistently efficient he is, getting those five yards or more in those situations has UK in a fantastic spot. Um, this past season, Kentucky's other two running backs basically fell into the bottom five or bottom 10 across the board in any metric you want to look at to start to set down. Big concern. The other big concern is how he's an eraser. You know, playing behind the big blue, big blue wall, it's a fantastic privilege. Um, the past three seasons, I think Kentucky's offensive line has finished top 10 in pro football focus run and pass grade. But this past season, Chris Rodriguez was hit behind the line of scrimmage on 19% of his carries. 41 by volume. That was the fourth most in the SEC. And despite that adversity, no one has been as consistent as him negating and moving forward. Now, when you look at basic things like negative run rate, his career clip of 3.1 is more than half of the SEC average. So most folks know he doesn't move backwards too much, but we know because of that offensive line, most people tend to give them the credit. But here I'm here to tell you, Chris Rodriguez is equally as important to that statistic as his big boys up front. So he was hit behind the line of scrimmage 41 times this past season. Almost two-thirds of them resulted in a gain. So that is what I like to call gumption conversion rate. How many times were you hit in the backfield? How many times of those carries did you result in a positive gain? 63.4 both times the back-to-back -back season. So no other SEC here is above 50%. That should just really highlight how strong and ferocious he is at all areas of the field. And, and talk about broken tackle rate, which is a strong
stable metric that helps prognosticate year-in, year-out success along with yards after contact. Well, on these carries behind the line of scrimmage, he had a bodacious 85.7 broken tackle rate. It's absurd how strong he was and how he doesn't get the credit for that type of thing. And, of course, the flip side of that um, is behind, behind the chains. So when we have early first down rushing success, we have success when we're hit behind the line of scrimmage. We have okay success in short yardage situations. But when you are consistently consi- when you are consistently helping get your offense back on track when they are behind the chains, no running back the past two seasons in the SEC has a success rate north of 40% when behind the chains besides Chris Rodriguez. How about that? Not too bad, and considering that his broken tackle rate and yak average in these instances were top two and top four, respectively, in that time. Fantastic. So safe to say Kentucky's got no one else on their roster that, at least at the running back position, that comes close to these metrics. Absolutely. And, I mean, looking at Kavase's smoke in general when hit behind the line of scrimmage, bottom 10 in yak average, broken tackle rate, and negative run rate. Point blank, the Wildcats had yet to discover another eraser. So, Chris Rodriguez had 41 carries for like 106 yards, most in the SEC. The rest of the UK's attempts when they had contact behind the line, 39 attempts, 23 yards. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is a big enough deal around the country. I know in SEC country, a lot of people have eyes on the situation with Chris Rodriguez. But needless to say, as, as you so eloquently put it, I mean, his value is astronomical to this offense particularly, well, I wouldn't say a new scheme, but obviously a new play caller, new offensive line coach. So they really need this guy on the field, particularly uh, against some of their SEC foes. And remind me, Mike, um, does Will Levis like play action? <laughs> the man loves I think he does. play action. I think, I think that really works when the defense is really concerned about a bruising bell cow between the tackles to jump up and try and clog run lanes you know so you know it's going to be a multifaceted type of impact if he's not going to be on the field mm-hmm. so we'll get to more will levis in just a minute but again that was uh the big reason i wanted to have you on the on the line clark your sec quarterback passing floors and you know just uh, real quick before we start diving into where you have some players over others can you give us uh you know just maybe a quick analysis on on why you you stuck with passing floor as opposed to uh you know passing yards passing touchdowns completion percentage stuff like that well yeah the volume metrics can be really really deceiving you know jim bob can throw for 500 yards but jim bob might have been throwing screens and rpos or routes closer towards the line of scrimmage all the time where the receivers had to do a lot of the heavy lifting and he really wasn't throwing downfield Mm -hmm. so what passing floor attempts to do it tries to isolate what a quarterback is in a vacuum now it's not a perfect exercise as we'll see when we talk about Hendon Hooker in a second but it is a at least an above average attempt to try and isolate these quarterbacks and to see how stable dependable are they in structure down to down so what is a passing floor we're taking away aspects that could potentially manipulate the defense so we're talking about play actions we're also talking about screens and RPOs, like we just mentioned, like anybody, a sixth grader could go out and execute an RPO to um, perfection. It doesn't require a whole lot of um, mental ability or arm talent to take care of business with those types of things. And then the third aspect, or uh, one of the aspects is plays under pressure. Most people can, uh, you know, 
don't do well when there's a blitzer barreling towards them. It, it increases the degree of difficulty, and because pressured attempts are not as consistent down-to-down as clean attempts, they have a little bit more variability, they have a little bit more volatility on someone's bottom line, so we take them out as well. Same with things outside the pocket, of course. That can happen when someone is extending, someone is escaping pressure, but you also get easy, high-low rollout plays that some teams like to lean on to really maximize um, someone's passing lanes. Maybe they are a little on the short side. Maybe they're on the mobile side. Maybe they don't have the best arm to drive outside the numbers. So sometimes moving the pocket can be a way to distort someone's operation. So passing floor gets rid of all of that, Mike. No screens for RPOs, no plays outside the pocket, no pressures, no play actions. How dependable, how good can you be to standing there and throwing without guises and without adversity? You've got four guys listed as having a high passing floor in the SEC. Of course, you got to have Bryce Young. If you don't have him in the high category, your list is, is just not worth anything. The reigning Heisman Trophy winner, and no surprise, you got Hendon Hooker. Uh, what separates uh, these two before we get into the other two? Uh, well, Bryce Young, you know, you don't need me to tell you, Mike, that he was pressured a lot last year. It's one of the reasons why he won the Heisman Trophy is because he was such a cool, calm operator when things broke down. But, you know, in structure, he was basically top five across the board, which is exactly what you like to see. His accuracy of 71.3 was top three. First down touchdown rate, also top three. So very impactful type of player. Of course, this past season, Alabama with Bill O'Brien calling the offense as opposed to Steve Sarkeesian, they did a dramatic scheme change. It was more empty, less motions, less play actions, more RPOs. So when we mentioned that there, he was a little bit more susceptible to those elements that could affect his down-to-down output with the pressure, with the RPOs, it's really nice to see that his passing efficiency and ability maintains itself in this parameter. Now, what about Hendon Hooker? And a little sidebar here, I got an issue with you, Clark. You say you're not a big fan of, of Josh Heupel's uh, version of the Baylor spread offense. Why is that? I don't like charting 100 plays a week, Mike. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. So that Tennessee and- Ole Miss game was a, was a damn nightmare, I would imagine. Yeah, it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun. But the thing is, like, I do respect – his philosophy, it's all, it's aggression. If, if any team wants to try and, you know, pick themselves up by the bootstraps and try and turn around the program, forget the triple option and go into the Baylor spread with what Josh Heupel does. You know, it has a lot of vertical choice routes, which for people who may not know, it's an up and down route tree where the receiver can basically run a deep go, a deep comeback, or hitch up to space. Very friendly, and when you're running this at 100 miles per hour, it can really wear out back ends and really accentuate deep completions, as we saw last year. You know, Tennessee, they don't really have the most complicated designs through the air, but they're just absolutely impactful just because of how, like I said, it's aggressive. It really does lean into making back ends pay if they're leaking or you know, peaking towards the line of scrimmage because the other side of that offense is, the athletic and diverse run game. So they're an offense that likes to use shoot motion. Some people call this escort motion, but we saw this in the later part of the year. You know, Alabama and Georgia both started to dabble with it a little bit more. Basically think of it as sending your tight end, your sniffer, either out wide in a trip set or if he is inside the box, on an at-the-snap motion where he is a functional blocker, right? So we saw a few of those plays where he helped set up a tunnel screen to space, and when he worked back towards the middle of the formation where he curled up like on an insert 
or as one of the lead blockers on a counter. When you run insert, when you run counter, when you run uh, ISOs and straight zones and duos, and you run all of them at equal weight, and you run them at 100 miles per hour, it, it becomes a guessing game for defensive coordinators. And it's really, really tough. Like I said, and they're an offense that also likes to use a whole lot of play action and guises and stuff. Hendon Hooker only had 81 of these attempts in his sample this past season. That's basically 27% of his entire makeup. Only two or only three other SEC years had a lower uh, chunk in this four sample than Hendon Hooker. But because of how the offense is just innately aggressive, his four metrics shined. So he was throwing downfield quite often. 21% of these things resulted in a 20-yard or more completion. <laughs> and less than 4% resulted in an interceptable pass attempt. He was not putting the ball in the harm's way. He was throwing the ball downfield, and he was obtaining potent, potent results. So even though he is, quote-unquote, a game manager of sorts, he's, he is executing the offense as designed. And, and as we saw last year, that can mean throwing the ball downfield as much as anyone else in the conference. Yeah, and another quarterback that I love, he's running a similar – uh, offense there based of course on that Baylor spread KJ Jefferson I think a lot of SEC fans will be surprised that uh, he's on your list as having a high passing floor can you give us some insight into uh, why Arkansas's quarterback made the cut very similar reasons to Hendon Hooker um Mr. Bryles is a play caller very much he puts his quarterback into positions to succeed it might not always be result in consistent down-to-down wins, but it usually does result in potent downfield gains. So I just mentioned explosive pass rate for Hendon Hooker. Well, K.J. Jefferson, he's in the top three in that respect, and he's also in the top four in interceptable as well. His accuracy was only behind Hendon, or was only behind Will Rogers and beat Hendon Hooker. So down-to-down, he was putting the ball right, right where it needed to go, and his yards per attempt only trailed Hendon Hooker's in that respect. So yes, I think he's still a raw quarterback, but in structure, thanks to his play caller, he has one of the highest passing floors in the conference this upcoming fall. And then one of the more underrated passers, I think, in the entire country, Will, I'm going to start calling him Jolly after you, uh, Clark. Yes, Jolly, Jolly Rogers. There at Mississippi State. I mean, my goodness, he caught fire at the tail end of that uh, season last year until uh, obviously the Egg Bowl and the bowl game. But uh, what is it about Will Rogers who, you know, they love to dink and dunk there in, in the Mike Leach system, but uh, he's still got a high passing floor according to your metrics. Yes, and it is because of the dinks and the dunks. So the other two guys, um, you know, Hendon Hooker was a little bit more consistent than K.J. Jefferson, but their floors were high because of the potency. Not the case with Will Rogers. No offense in SEC play this past season when you're including all snaps had a better team success rate than the Bulldogs. That matters when over half of your offensive plays beat situational goals. You're able to put defenses into pressure. Now, it's not the easiest modus operandi to string together double-digit drives every single week, every single time you're on the field, but again, it does help wear down opponents. And Will Rogers as we saw this past season, fantastic decision maker and keeping the ball out of harm's way because that was one of the big, big bugaboos as a freshman. Really high interceptable pass rate. But when I looked at his floor from 2020 entering this season, one thing was consistent. Low uncatchable, high accuracy. 
And now, obviously, like you mentioned, dinking and dunking, throwing short is a really great way to pad those accuracy statistics. But same time, when you're not throwing the ball into harm's way and you are able to take these situational wins, it makes all the difference in the world. He was top five in success rate, first down touchdown rate, interceptable. And like I mentioned earlier, no one was as accurate as him in these situations. Almost three-fourths of his attempts were on target. So considering that only 8% were uncatchable, had zero chance to be caught, I'm, I'm able to overlook the fact that his yards per attempt, his explosive, his downfield offerings, may, who, which may not be as strong as some of his other peers just because of how consistent he is in these instances. And since the offense itself is aiming to put him in these situations as much as possible, you know, it's not an offense that really loves play-action screens, RPOs, and uh, since a lot of people just rush three against them, you need to. It's really, really nice to see that he is so consistent and dependable in structure. Now, the, the next floor down, you got it listed as passing floor okay, which, you know, we're not, we're not sitting here bashing these guys saying they're terrible or anything, but just one notch down is Mr. Hype, first round pick. Uh, I've even heard on a podcast this week, Clark, Will Levis is going to be the next Joe Burrow is. And I was like, <laughs> I'm shaking my head at all this hype. I mean, he's a good player, but let's not put the cart in front of the horse. You got Will Levis as an okay passing floor. And, and as you like to note time and time again, I believe he went six weeks without completing a, a pass down the field. Uh, can you tell us uh, what do your metrics say about Will Levis? Yep. Uh, Will Levis went five games, six weeks without completing a deep ball last year. And, it's damning that all of those opponents were in SEC play. Yikes! But, yes, um, he's a toolsy quarterback. This is a buzzword for some guys. You know, when people think toolsy, uh, top-of-mind awareness will always bring up Josh Allen. Like, he is the toolsy archetype. And the thing is, he's such an outlier. And, but since he's such an outlier and he does things that other people can't do, people cannot help but try and chase that type of Set. Will Levis squarely falls into that, but he's much, much closer to the jo uh, Justin Herbert realm of toolsy guys than the Josh Allen guys. So when you are a toolsy guy, you might not have the best process in the world. You might not have the best results in the world. And that's exactly what Will Levis was last year. He was a pretty average quarterback, both overall and in our floor metrics. So, you know, his down to down accuracy was only seventh. His depth adjusted was sixth. His uncatchable pass rate fell outside the top five as well. In fact, none of his floor metrics cracked the top five. So if you're going to be talked about as a, uh, a, you know, one of the best passers in college football and have one of the highest ceilings in the country, you would like to just see a little bit more execution on tape, a little bit more consistency on tape. Sure, he has the tools. That's why we call him toolsy. He can throw the ball a mile. He has really good open field athleticism. And if I were to bring down the qualifier to – 30 minimal carries, no SEC-er this past season, logged a preferable success rate than Will Levin. You know, that is kind of padded by quarterback sneaks, but <laughs> that's a different conversation. But we're here to talk about his passing floor, and the passing floor is just very, very mediocre, very, very moderate, and his biggest concern is just putting the ball in the harm's way. Now, that kind of ties in a little bit to his accuracy. Some of his interceptions hit off his guy's hands, but for the most part, they were behind him where the receivers had to make adjustments. And, again, that's why I track process. If you're overly going to put passes behind people, it's going to put you in more situations to have carom, and that's going to lead to more turnover-worthy plays. 8.8% of his floor passes this past season had 
turnover-worthy potential. None of our volume passers that are coming back within the SEC can claim a worse clip. Mm. Now, one of the biggest wild cards, I think, potentially in the SEC, Max Johnson, now, of course, at Texas A&M, but formerly of LSU. Uh, you know, the Aggies desperate for, you know, just just some consistency at that quarterback position. I know Everybody in College Station loves Haynes King. I, For their sake, Clark, I hope he's the next Johnny Manziel. But uh, based on what I've seen, I like Max Johnson a little bit more. You've got him as the passing floor okay. And based on what you've seen, could he be the guy that uh, – you know, solidifies that position for A&M and, and potentially they have another or, or their first 10-win season under Jimbo Fisher? Yeah, the passing floor is okay, and this is mostly because of how he's able to find his best games or his best games as a processor, either pre-snap or directly after the ball is snapped. So his splits, when he gets rid of the ball under two seconds, are night and day than when he holds the ball beyond two seconds. Like, he's really, really bad when he has to hold. He doesn't like what he sees. When he has to throw the ball maybe into a spot where he's not as comfortable. And you see this with his deep passing. He throws a lot of ducks, a lot of underthrows, a lot of contested balls. So when he's not, you know, in a position to recognize what he sees, he's just a much, much worse quarterback. But the thing is, I think Jimbo Fisher still has a pretty good uh, reputation as a quarterback whisperer. Max Johnson's dad played in the NFL. He has things going for him where I think he can be a poor man's Matt Leiner, uh, a type of person that can help guide the offense. He might not be able to make all these throws in a spectacular fashion, but I think he has enough of intangible talent that will help translate on the field. Hans King now, yeah, he has a small sample from where I'm looking at him. I really like his mobility. Um, but one thing that is consistent in the past two seasons with Jimbo he likes to move the pocket with these past people, with, with Zach Calzada, Haynes King, no matter who was in there. He had no qualms moving the pocket. And, of course, with LSU this past season, that was one of the best tactics that they were able to find um, some of Johnson's best throws, was moving the pocket with play action. So I think that will be able to carry over, but it's going to matter the downfield accuracy. Haynes King was okay, nothing worth talking about because his sample was so low, but when we're looking at depth-adjusted accuracy, when we're looking at Mr. Johnson, you know, I mentioned those underthrows, and it's pretty prevalent when you see that his depth-adjusted accuracy came in below 51% and would have placed in the double digits within the conference among returners. Now, I cannot wait, Clark, for uh, the Georgia Bulldogs to come after you because you're after their man, Stetson Bennett, passing floor, you got it listed as poor. My guy, the guy just won an national championship. He's the greatest quarterback to ever suit up in Athens. How come uh, – why do you got Stetson Bennett listed as poor? Poor. Because when you're stripping away all the things that helped him, you know, maximize his position, whether it was play action, whether it was screens or RPOs, homeboy finished no better than ninth amongst returners in first down touchdown rate, interceptable, and accuracy percentage. And you know what? Only one other of our volume guys had a worse uncatchable pass rate when there was no adversity in structure. That's poor. I'm sorry. The results were fantastic. But you know what? Based on how he got those results, I have very little confidence that he'll be able to replicate that. And I, I even mentioned on my video, I would not be surprised if he doesn't end the year as a starter. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think a lot of people have that same opinion. But uh, now I'm not going to ask you about all these, Clark. I don't want to keep you all dang day here. But Spencer Rattler, that is a guy that, uh, of course, South Carolina fans so fired up to get. You got him listed as a passing floor okay, same grade as uh, a Max Johnson or Will Levis. Uh, what do you think of Spencer Rattler after watching him at Oklahoma? 
100%. He is a different quarterback when he has to operate inside the pocket. He is a magician when he's outside of structure playing backyard ball and he can lean into his potent playmaking. Um, but like, again, since this parameter is all about what can you do inside the pocket with nothing helping you, no adversity, what can you do? He's just simply a much worse quarterback in terms of ball placement results. His accuracy percentage was 66.2% overall. In our little exercise here, that drops to 58%. Not a lot of people see that big of an accuracy swing when, uh, you know, you don't have a lot of, you know, like, like we mentioned, adversity barreling towards you when you're just sitting there and you're not being able to dependently place passes when a tenth of your passes have potentially picked off when only 8% result in a 20-yard or more completion. I mean, when you just look at all of these result sets and when you look into all these uh, process stats, they get worse. Sir, by SEC standards, what remains is still kind of okay, still kind of middle of the road, still kind of optimistic in what he could potentially become, led by a 4% uncatchable pass rate. Like, I cannot stress, not wasting chances is phenomenal. But still, when you just see how much of a better quarterback he is outside the pocket with play action, as opposed to just being a person in structure, it is a concern, but I am as high as Spencer Rattler as most people are. I, I'm one of his big proponents. I think he can get back to his playing style in 2020. I think hopefully in the spring game where he was a little bit more of a check down Charlie, which tied into how he was in 2021, goes away because he can do things throwing the football that simply not a lot of people can do. And one of the biggest surprises from your list, I know you did you don't have a ton of games to watch him on because he just not played a ton in college, but Brady Cook, Missouri, got him listed as a high passing floor, which again, that's your, that's your highest mark you were given. Uh, could this be the guy that uh, Missouri fans have been desperately searching for, a, a breakout candidate in Eli Drinkwood's system? I gave him a high floor for the same reason I gave Will Rogers a high floor. He was a game manager. He did not press. He took what the defense gave him. Now, that is not sexy. That is not going to win a lot, a lot of people over when you hear check down Charlie's and dinks and dunks. But the thing is, when you don't throw an interceptable pass, when you're still able to you know, crack the top four in first down touchdown rate, and when none of your peers, small sample or not, can top your 64% success rate in our floor sample, I like to think he can build off of that and have some momentum for this fall. Now, again, throwing short, 6.6 yards per attempt, not sexy whatsoever. Only one explosive pass. That's not great. I know that. But, look, Missouri is going to be another one of these teams that really needs to find more potency. But until it does, it has to maximize what it does well. And looking at the passers on its roster, it seems like five-yard passes, seven-yard passes, it's going to be its most impactful way to move the ball downfield. Now, last two, Clark, Anthony Richardson, Garrett Nussmeyer, neither one you really graded because, there's, again, there's just not a ton of film and, and the opponents they've played about, the situations they've been in the game. Could these two, could they be breakout candidates where at the end of the season we're saying, man, these were two of the better quarterbacks in the league? I mean, Richardson, I mean, dude, you know I love sample sizes. I love the numbers. But, like, the mo the first moment he played last year, my jaw was like, wow, this guy, he's good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he's talented. <laughs> so, yes, he's one of these guys who I'm able to give a little bit of benefit of the doubt until he, he comes into his own. But I will not – expect him to start the season strong. I do expect him to be a little bit rocky. He does throw the ball in the harm's way. And we do wonder why uh, Dan Mullen was hesitant to put him in last year. Well, 
when we look at the numbers, that basically tells why. He put the ball in the harm's way, he was inaccurate, and his overall success rate was not as good as Emory Jones. What your uh, concerns with Emory Jones aside, Anthony Richardson as a talent is an upgrade. He can throw the ball further. He is a monster outside the pocket. He can really put defensive coordinators into a bind just because of how he can just maximize his situation. But I'm just a little bit hesitant on how impactful he'll be right out the gate because I still need to see that his accuracy improves and his decision-making improves. And after all, he is playing in the new offense. So um, hopefully he can, that learning curve is a little less short. Now, Garrett Nussmeyer, um, I like his ceiling more than any of the other LSU passers. Um, you know, after watching the spring game, it felt like that scene from The Office. You're, you're, you like The Office, don't you, Mike? Oh, yeah. Okay, so it's, it's season three. They're doing the amazing race, sales meeting. They're, they're breaking out in the team. You know, pretend I'm Stanley for a second. All right, Stanley, it's your time to pick somebody. Pass. I don't like any of these guys. And then after looking around, I guess, I'll take the kid. And that would be Garrett Nussmeyer. Just because he has a little bit of a higher ceiling. Like, we saw this last year. He was a heat seeker. He was not afraid to put the ball in harm's way. He was throwing the ball downfield um, with zeal. 14.4 average depth of target. You know, again, small sample size. But if that was averaged out over the course of the SEC season, no one would have put up a higher clip. So, with that degree of difficulty... Throwing the ball downfield, now his down-to-down actually was not going to be as strong. But just because of how he can effortlessly drive the ball downfield and he does have that type of skill set, I just think he offers more to this LSU offense more than Jaden Daniels, who really has to get by using his legs. And if a quarterback has to lean on his legs, I don't like how he's going to perform potentially at the next level. Wow. I mean, just a wealth of information there from Clark Brooks. Really appreciate you. As always, give him a follow at SEC underscore StatCat. No one's doing it like Clark does. And it, check out his website, of course, SECStatCat.com. And check out his work at On3.com. Clark, thank you, thank you, thank you for all this time. I, I truly do appreciate it. Mike, it was a blast as always to talk ball with you. All right, so just want to say thanks again to Clark for joining the show helping us finish strong here on the podcast, get you some content going into the weekend. One more week down until SEC football is here. We are hovering right around, it's a little over 80 days until the first full Saturday of action. Of course, Vanderbilt the week prior and Missouri, Tennessee kicking off on a Thursday so hey SEC football will be here before you know it and we'll have you covered all the way to kickoff and well beyond so I appreciate each and every one of you for sticking out with us here during this long dreadful off season of the show and as always hey we're busting ass over here to get you guys some content if you have not yet done it if you could just go that extra step give us that five star written review on the Apple podcast app Or if you're not an Apple user, you can give us a review on Spotify. Each and every one of those helps the show grow, as well as subscribing to our YouTube channel. All those things really help the show grow, won't cost you a dime, and we'll send you a beer koozie free of charge just for doing that. Just send those on over to thatsecpodcast at gmail.com, and we're happy to send you your beer koozie of choice free of charge. But that's going to do it for this week of shows. We'll catch you on the next one.